Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Our discussion today came from our archives and was recorded in August of 2018. Our talk is hosted by Ed Dodson, who is joined by our returning guest, Dr. Edward Nell. Dr. Nell attained his bachelor's degree from Princeton University with an economics degree and his master's and PhD from Oxford University in England after being awarded the Rhodes Scholarship. Dr. Nell has taught at numerous universities in the U.S. and across the globe, including Wesleyan, Bennington College, McGill University, Bard College, and the University of Siena. He has written for many economic journals on topics such as macroeconomic theory, development, and monetary and financial analysis. He is also the author of The General Theory of Transformational Growth, Making Sense of a Changing Economy, and many more. We were lucky enough to join Dr. Nell in discussing the role of conflict and competition in economics, Henry George's theories of trade, and how saving and investment interact in macroeconomic models. We hope you enjoy this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. Welcome to Smart Talk. It's great to have you here. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Well, uh, I, I have read your new book. The collaboration that you made with Andrew Mazzoni uh, is really interesting. Uh, certainly, your effort to take a look at Henry George's analysis and determine, you know, what in that analysis can be brought forward and updated with modern economic analysis is important. Uh, would you like to elaborate on how this project came to you and how important you think it is? And within George's analysis, what needs to be updated and why does it need it to be updated? Well, that's a huge, huge, huge topic. Um, how, did, how did it start? Um, Andrew and I have been friends ever since he was a student at the New School. And um, when he got involved with Henry George, he began to talk to me about Henry George. I had read Henry George as an undergraduate, and when I first went to England, um, I had a, a, a kind of very funny experience. As an American in Oxford in the uh, uh, late 1950s, um, it wasn't so easy to come back. You didn't just fly back across the Atlantic. Uh, so for Christmas, uh, the people who had brought me over, the Rhodes Trust, uh, arranged for me to go to Scotland for Christmas. And 
with a friend, I got on the train and we went and British Rail wasn't so good then. The train broke down. And we were stuck in the city of York at 10 o'clock at night when everything was going shut. We saw a cafe called the Ebor Cafe. So we went there because the train wasn't going to go on to Scotland until the next morning. We had no place to stay. We got there and the proprietor of this cafe turned out to be the president of the Henry George Society of Great Britain. And so we stayed up almost all night talking about Henry George. It was completely fascinating and unexpected. I had no idea that Henry George had done so much in England, had had such a huge impact on England, and that the society was still very much alive. But my subsequent work in economics had practically nothing to do with Henry George. And it wasn't until I started talking to Andrew that I really came back to this. And the question that we wanted to focus on was, let's look at Henry George again because the current crisis, that was the crisis of uh, 2008, and a crisis that, that had been going on for a long time in the subject of economics itself. Uh, came together to suggest that mainstream economics might actually be open to serious challenge and serious change. So we thought we would re-examine Henry George and do so in the light not only of mainstream economics, which neither of us found satisfactory, but the new forms of economic analysis that were developing modern classical economics, post-Keynesian economics, various kinds of Keynesian economics, Marxian economics, and various kinds of Marxian economics. Let's look at it completely fresh. So Can I ask a question here? Was the, 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 the response from the economics discipline and the, the variety of schools of thought was that largely, largely a reaction to the criticism by uh, the media and by analysts that e economics had not been able to forecast the crash? Well, that, that developed, um, remember the Queen of England asked a group of economists, why didn't you foresee the crash? Um, the popular opinion with respect to the crash was very critical, and rightly so, of economics, mainstream economics. But the criticism has been going on for a very long time, and these other schools of economics have become very sophisticated. And <clears throat> economics has had, from the end of World War II to the present, a major effort to become seriously empirical. This is called econometrics. And econometrics was born in the aftermath of World War II 
and developed very much in, from the 1960s to the 1980s um, as a really significant effort to take statistics and use statistics to test economic theories. And basically, in many respects, it was a failure. Mainstream economic theories don't test very easily because they're best on, based on very unrealistic assumptions. Uh, that's the simplest way to put it. There's a lot of I, complicated example, stuff to say, but when you get right down to it, that's the answer. They assume that people have powers that they don't. They assume that conditions are different from what they are. Uh, it's not a matter simply of abstracting. In order to build a model, you have to abstract. You can't abstract from anything essential. What is essential? That's a long argument. Uh, but much worse than the problem of abstracting is the problem of assuming things about your agents. What do they know? What can they do? How fast can they do it? These things which are typically assumed in rather extreme form in mainstream models just make it impossible to test them. So many different approaches have been developed to try to correct or replace this approach with another. And these are all worth looking at. So our discussions began to develop some kind of understanding of what Henry George was doing. And this is really interesting. Notice progress in poverty does not start by saying, what is value? Every other major treatise in economics starts out with the theory of value. Henry George pays no attention to it. He moves on to a problem. Why has enormous scientific and technical progress built into the construction of new industries, new cities, new civil, almost a new civilization, why has that reproduced poverty? And maybe even reproduced poverty on a greater scale. This is a dynamic problem, not an equilibrium problem. He assumes that we can talk about wages, profits, value, capital, and so on. Um, he doesn't bother with the theory of value. He moves right into dynamics. And modern economics, even mainstream economics, but certainly Keynesian, Marxian, Neo-Ricardian, modern classical, all of these schools of critical economics are all very much more interested in dynamics than in equilibrium. And Henry George is perfect in this respect. So the question was, what can you say about this? And it seemed to me that there were two things you could say right away that, that are simply not present in mainstream economics and not present in any of the critical schools of economics. One is that there is a dynamic relationship between the aggregate of land values and the aggregate of output. Land value, total land values and total aggregate output. There's a connection there. And the second is there's a connection 
between the aggregate of rents and the aggregate costs of government, excluding the military and so on. When you talk about land values, when you talk about land values, and when you talk about rents, uh, are you using an expanded definition to include other inelastic assets, you know, well, such as the broadcast frequencies, etc.? When et we talk about the dynamic connection, it holds whether we use the expanded value or the classical or traditional definition. They're still, they move together. The magnitudes are much closer in the modern world if you use the expanded notion of rents and if you cut down the costs of government by excluding military. Um, and so the space program, Henry George didn't think about the space program and he didn't like standing armies. So when he talked about government, he didn't have those in mind. Uh, but even if you don't do that, you still find a dynamic connection. And that kind of thinking is the thinking which is present in most of the critical approaches to economics that seek to displace or rebuild mainstream economics. So there's, a, there's an immediate connection and, and sympathy um, from critical economics to Georgist thinking in economics. So Andrew and I started to re-examine Henry George and start from that rather than from the writing of the large number of, in fact, very good Georgist economics, economists, sorry, yes. So let me go back to your first um, question. How did we get started? What do we find? What do we want to criticize in Henry George? Well, I think he presents the claim that rents eat up progress. And my feeling on that is that he doesn't make the case. He makes a perfectly good case that rents will expand along with growth. But that would tend to mean that rents and the rest of the surplus being produced would expand together, uh, rather than rents expanding faster. So what would make rents expand faster? Um, I wasn't really able to come up with a, a good economic analysis that strongly supported that. But it's still the case that if rents expand at the same rate, you have a, um, you have a major contribution to, what, to the way we should think about distribution. The critical economists of the post-Keynesian and neo-Ricardian schools, and also some of the Marxists, have attacked the neoclassical theory of distribution. Well, Henry George didn't subscribe to it. 
The theory of distribution that we find in progress and poverty is that the margin of cultivation is crucial to the explanation of rents and wages and interest. The neoclassical theory says that the margin of use of land determines rents, the marginal product of wages determines wages, and the marginal product of capital determines the earnings of capital. And all of this can be put together in a neoclassical production function. That theory has been, I think, effectively destroyed by the critiques, but Henry George didn't need critiques to see through it. He simply didn't accept it. And he argued that each of the uh, factors of production has characteristics that make the markets that determine it different from one another. And this is very much acceptable to the uh, to, to non-mainstream economists. Serious well, I have, a, I have an important question for you. Mm -hmm. Why do economists insist on using the term profit to describe what I would, I would say is a mere accounting uh, term that says what is left over after all the costs are absorbed from revenue uh, generated is your profit. Mm -hmm. and, and in defense of Henry George, uh, you know, he, he really looked at what was happening to wages and the uh -huh. return to capital mm -hmm. as being subject to claims by those who were privately collecting the rent. So profit was a different term for him than it is as used in modern economics. And I, I've never really understood how economists could take that accounting term and convert it into an, a term that is meant to be an economic outcome. I think that's a very long story, <clears throat> okay. but I'll try to do it very quickly. One, in the late 1890s, the marginal productivity theory of distribution was established uh, in England by Philip Henry Wicksteed uh, and in America by Clark, J.B. Clark. This theory said that the three factors of production were on an equal footing and that the supply of each was different, land was fixed, wages depended on, on workers' willingness to work, and capital depended on savings. But the demand for capital was the same as the demand for labor, as the demand for land, that is, these were all factors of production and all three entered in cooperating in production. And the demand would be determined by the margin of each, the margin of capital, the margin of labor, and the margin of land. And that these were therefore coordinated, the three markets worked together, and they established this, and moreover, because they arrive at the margin, 
And savings depends on the marginal utility of, or the, of consumption, that is to say, you consume up to the marginal utility and then you save. Uh, labor, you offer labor up to the marginal disutility of work, and land, there's uh, some sort of story on land. Uh, you can say that these are the free, unfettered choices of the consuming public. And therefore, this theory of distribution shows that the market, working properly, gives what can be described as a just and fair payment to the owners of the factors of production. In other words, the system is a great system because it really works fairly for everybody. Now, Henry George certainly didn't think that, neither do the critics of modern economics. And in fact, the defenders of marginal productivity theory have more or less given up trying to establish that it's a justification for the system. But it's also a bad theory. It isn't true to the facts, um, and it has tremendous theoretical defects, which are all part of a technical critique of mainstream economics. But the point is that Henry George was much, he, he saw through this theory, saw that it was not, not realistic. But the marginal product of capital became a focus point for the critique. And one of the things about this is an ambiguity in any attempt to test this theory between capital as finance and capital as real productive machinery and goods. What's, what's the relationship between these two and why is there a systematic relationship between them and what kind of figures should we use if we're trying to test this theory? And as a matter of fact, what's the theoretical relationship between the two? These were questions on which the theory failed in its attempts to defend itself from the critique. But in the process, profit, which the rate of profit is supposed to equal the marginal product of capital. Therefore, you have to figure out what the rate of profit is. Therefore, you have to know what profit is for the denominator, for the numerator. The denominator is capital. So, um, the calculation became subject to fitting in, the calculation of what profit is became subject to fitting into this theoretical issue, which is very unrealistic. I mean, the, the theory at, at its best is unrealistic, and the critique of it, of course, had to accept the assumptions of the theory in part in order to develop it. That's 50 years of economic conflict in a nutshell. Uh, 
And a lot of time invested in trying to defend and attack the theory. Oh, my God, yes. And all the major economists of um, um, all the Nobel Prize winners, everybody wrote something on this. It started in Cambridge, England. It moved to Cambridge, Massachusetts. Harvard and MIT were deeply involved in this. So were Columbia and the New School. Uh, it, was, it, it was a worldwide conflict. And if you were to ask what did it contribute, it was entirely negative. It shot down a bad theory. But it didn't actually advance. Keynesian economics advanced ways of thinking about the economy that made a difference. Not always a good difference, but certainly a difference. It connected. This debate didn't connect much. But it did deal with important ideas, capital and profit. Um, economists nowadays, many economists would argue that profit is the return to capital uh, exclusive of rent. But business, if a, if a corporation owns land, owns buildings, collects rents, um, and produces goods in some other buildings or the same buildings uh, and sells them, it's going to take it all in as profit. Right. Um, and this, it seems to me, is, is quite important because the assumption of real estate earnings into profit, corporate profits gives us a figure that is mixed in terms of its origin. Because the market processes that generate rents continue to operate, even if the rents are collected by corporations and incorporated into their balance sheets. It's also true that in many cases, because many corporations own very valuable locations and maybe even natural resource-rich uh, lands, that they're enjoying imputed rents. Mm -hmm. And that those imputer rent, imputed rents are capitalized uh, by, by the market into a potential selling price for those assets. And the question for economists, as, as well as regulators uh, and taxing authorities, is whether to mark those assets to market value and how often that should be done and what, by what mechanisms it ought to be done to recognize those gains that, that accrue to the owner of a location based on the imputed rents. Well, and uh, homeowners, too. Um, and <clears throat> homeowners benefit from what is essentially a rent. It's, all, it's treated as a capital gain uh, when the value of their property, house and land, uh, changes because the location has deteriorated or improved. So whole neighborhoods go up and down, and uh, home, the house prices and land prices they may not be separated, in fact, uh, move with the changing value of the location. Um, so the thing is that 
the changes in value that arise from changes in the value of locations, changes in the value of land, changes in the value of, for example, resources beneath the land, beneath the surface of the land, all of these changes are different from changes, for example, in the value of the house because the fashion is now for ranch-style houses instead of three-story Victorians or whatever it may be. Uh, there are changes in value that arise from different market pressures and we as economists ought to know how those different market pressures work and be able to, ass to assess how they're working. Uh, and it seems to me that Henry George offers us a way into all of that. And uh, that was what, was what we were interested in. Uh, That's your starting point. And then, you know, in your book, you really emphasize the development of the financialization of, of markets and the securitization of financial instruments, et cetera, that this, this, change in, in how we how our global economy operates, which I guess begins probably in the in the late 60s, early 70s in a serious way, um, that you've indicated that that this has been a driving force for the instability that's occurred in the global global economy ever since. And it and it combines this the monopoly of land rents, which uh, extends over to the entire financial sector. Uh, maybe this is a good time for you to expand on, you know, the details of how you see these interacting. Yeah. Well, first I want to say that when this project started, it seemed important to not to focus on the global aspects, but on the financial aspects, even though they, they go together. Uh, and the reason for that is that Henry George takes a very strong position on free trade and also doesn't talk very much at all in Progress and Poverty about money. And free trade and money are two topics that have to be discussed in dealing with globalization. And to keep a book short and to focus on um, a few things in Henry George that really are important for modern-day economics, um, it seemed to me we had to cut that off. But we do propose to go ahead with it uh, and to deal precisely with these issues. So globalization had to be kept to one side. Um, to move forward, it seemed to me that we had to take the very, very interesting and I think right on correct remarks of Henry George about progress, growth, um, and show how to move to the contemporary discussions of growth. <laughs> And that meant dealing with savings and investment in macroeconomics. So I had to devote a couple of chapters 
to that, um, one chapter develops a model of macroeconomics and savings and investment, which uh, takes place in an economy in which prices are very flexible. And production is not. Production is carried out by skilled workers and unskilled workers working in a plan with equipment and machinery and so on. But it really depends on the skill of the workers. If that's the case, you have work crews, groups of labor who have worked out ways of cooperating together in the workplace to carry out the projects of working. And that includes on farmers, too. Um, so you have farms and you have craft workers. New England, famous for this. Um, we find very little about this in Henry George, uh, but we find an exactly contemporary, published almost the same year, uh, account in Alfred Marshall and Mary Paley Marshall, his wife. They wrote together the economics of industry, and it was published in 1879 and 1880 in England. And this gives an account of how and at the beginning of book three, there is an account of how supply and demand in the aggregate work um, as prices respond flexibly to changes in supply and demand. Uh, and I've developed that and extended it quite a bit uh, in that section. Um, and it's kind of interesting because there's a, a, a sort of semi-stabilization. Um, if <clears throat> demand falls, prices will fall, but you don't break up your work teams right away, so wages are not much affected, money wages, but the real wage increases. And that means that consumption might displace investment. Investment falls, but consumption rises. And that tends to strengthen production. So the, the, this is a system that could offset minor fluctuations. But is, it will, of course, show up, and major an fluctuations will show up. That a question is an implication that uh, corporations would shift investment from this capital is before goods. corporations. There were, of course, in, but even Andrew Carnegie was for a long time a proprietorship. Uh, corporations don't really come into. In 1900, uh, over 50% of American production institutions employed four workers or less. 
This is a world of small business. So in the 1880, when uh, Alfred and Mary Marshall published this book, and, and uh, Henry George seems to write as, as though you know, prices would move flexibly, uh, you, can, you can see that this is a system. And it becomes, economists begin to call this the price mechanism. Um, but it disappears under corporate development, development of oligopoly, and mass production, the development of huge constant cost uh, systems. You, the, the unit cost is the same if the system is fully employed or if it's running at half at, at, at half pace. You, 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 you ask a business person, what's, what is the cost? You get a unit cost, a standard unit cost. It doesn't matter whether you're producing at half power or full power. So the idea of marginal costs is, is, is nonsense. They're constant. Uh, they're not even recorded. So um, it's, it's a new world after about, and then after the 1920s, starting anyway in the 1930s, and certainly after World War II, you have the, 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 the economy is dominated by, a, of, depends on what you want to do, but something like, 2,000 largest corporations produce three quarters or 80% of output. Um, this, is, this, this, this is a different world from a world in which there are literally millions of small businesses that produce most of the um, uh, output of the economy as it is before 1900. So these two chapters are macroeconomics for Henry George's time and the 30 or 40 years after that, and macroeconomics from World War II to the present. But even so in the present, your, things is, are changing. Is your conclusion then that particularly since the end of the Second World War, competitive enterprise has been on a downward slope, that there's, there's more oligarchy, oligarchies being formed all the time? Is this a, an ongoing process that we're going through now? Yeah, I think so. Um, uh, I, I would say that uh, the traditional ideas of monopoly from traditional economics aren't adequate to the task. There really is a, a, a world of institutions that we need to study. Uh, and we need to study it in terms of power. What kind of power are, what kind of power relations are embedded in the institutions of the modern economy? And uh, traditional economics doesn't, just doesn't do the job. Uh, we need to study the great corporations, but we need to, to study the great law firms that service them. We need to study corporations, but we need to study the great accounting firms that service them. How do these work together? How do these uh, interact? How do they interact 
with the government agencies that are supposed to regulate these, and the Congress that is supposed to pass laws that will benefit the public. It's not so clear that so many of the laws benefit the public. Uh, we have a new political economy that we need. But I didn't, I didn't really want to get into that. I, I wanted to get directly, as, as you said in your question, I wanted to get directly to the financial system because it seems to me that the financial system is, a, if it is really working properly, working to the way it's supposed to, doing everything that it is supposed to do, it is pretty sure to bring us into a crash. Now, that's a terrible system. And uh, it, it's, how does it work? And financial economics has become, became, a lot of people neglect it now, but it became a very sophisticated, mathematically highly developed way of dealing with risk. And it was such that maybe some of those proposals, ways of calculating what you're doing, really did manage risk for individual firms or households or users of this, these systems. But if everybody did it, you actually increased systemic risk. This was one of the findings that of some of the, the, of the critics uh, who investigated the system, both at the time and after. Uh, if it were, in other words, if you really carried out the program of financial economics, and if everybody did it, you made it worse. Right. And that, Isn't that, that what happened with the uh, hedge fund firms? They yeah. each developed an algorithm that worked so long as no one else was using an algorithm that countered their algorithm. Right, right. There was no, there, there, there was a, a really serious failure to look at the system as a whole. And uh, so I wanted to look at the system as a whole. And one thing seemed pretty clear. There's an inbuilt uh, pressure moving towards greater inequality and wealth that is just inherent in the ver in very simple relations in the financial system. Uh, and that is a, a, mod a model of that is presented um, in uh, chapter eight. Um, and then Then there is something which I think is really a, a contribution of George's thinking. And that is that if there is all this pressure for rents to be increased as progress takes place, as the economy grows, 
and we try to have a growth model based on savings and investment, consistent with what many different schools of economists are willing to accept. And maybe that may mean that it's true, or more or less true. So a savings and investment-based growth model, there's progress. And it's taking place all the time, except when investment literally falls to zero. Net investment. Um, okay. All that time, rents will increase. Well, let's look at the securities market. If those rents are securitized, if land values go up as rents go up and the land value is security or is securitized, or if it's the basis for a collateralized loan, then these kinds of security prices are going to go up. And that means that as long as the economy is growing at all, there will be upward pressure in the real estate section of the whole financial system. <clears throat> but that means that a corporation that wishes to maintain the value of its securities in a, at, at any time has to consider that its securities have to go up, otherwise people would move out of its securities into those that are rising. Therefore, corporations have to undertake strategies and policies that will keep their security prices up. Well, they can do this by making themselves profitable and doing better in their markets and so on. But that's kind of a long-term way to do it. The short-term way to do it is just buy your securities back, drive their price up. Um, security buybacks have been increasing in the economy, and they're, maybe they're at an all-term high right now. Uh, they're certainly very high. Uh, corporate buybacks are arguably well, that money could have been invested in productive facilities. It could have increased capacity. It could have modernized plant and equipment. It could have done a lot of things. But if it goes into the securities market, it doesn't do any of those things. So that's arguably a waste, a, kind of a really big negative externality. The second thing is that the pressure of constantly rising security prices tends to move security prices as a whole away from the value of the real underlying productive system. So that you, you get a separation of the security value of the whole of the production and the working value of the whole of production. And that separation is dangerous because if anything comes to break apart the constant rise of securities uh, and you have to cash them in, what underlies those securities is not worth as much. 
we see a, a long-term 20th century, late 20th century price-earnings ratios. They tended to be in the 12 to 15 range. Now we're seeing price-earnings ratios in the 25 to 30 range. There's a and we're, we're also seeing in, in some of the internet stocks and these, and these very innovative startups that the, there is no earnings at all and the price is still increasing. Yeah. And so that seems to be totally a speculative investment right. that's steering the, 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 money away that, from capital That's not a price-earnings ratio. That's a price-speculative expected earnings ratio. And um, that's completely, it's completely floating in the air. Uh, and what we, what, we see, what we see with this is something that High Minsky called uh, financial fragility. Um, and in, a, in effect, what we're, what we're seeing is a systematic process of developing financial fragility. And it's driven to considerable extent by real estate and rents. Uh, uh, their rising generates rises in the price of securities related to those, and that tends to drive up security prices even when there's no sound reason for them to go up. Um, and this can be developed into a, a, a sort of loose cyclical model. Um, but the, the, in a sense, the model is maybe less important than the underlying principles, financialization and its relation to real estate. Uh, and that's what the last chapter of the book is, is, is all about. That's, in a sense, the point of the book, is to pick something that is fundamental, and that fundamental relation is the relationship between the financial system as a whole and the productive economy. And this suggests that that relationship is deeply problematical and that the financial system isn't doing what it was traditionally supposed to do. It isn't assembling savings for investment. It isn't valuing loans properly. It isn't managing the monetary system. It's become a gigantic casino. Uh, there are aspects of any economy, any progressive economy, that are speculative. You're going to build a bridge. You have a new technology. Is it going to work? You're going to get energy from a new source. Will it turn out to be cost effective? You don't know when you institute a new technology. You don't know when you launch a new commodity on the market. It's a bet. But in addition to that bet, the financial system now has all kinds of other bets that are very shaky and also absorb a lot of resources. There's a book recently, I've, I've just forgotten the name of the author. He's written a couple of other very good books on finance. They've been made into movies. Uh, 
But he tells a story of the building of a, a communications line from Chicago to no northern New Jersey at a cost of about $30 million in order to cut a few microseconds off the news of exchanges on the Chicago Exchange. Right. I remember this. Unbelievable. Huge costs, real costs, in order to be able to move microseconds faster uh, on New York markets. This is a complete waste of resources. Not, nothing is gained. Nothing is made better. Nothing is made more efficient. Nobody is made better off. Nobody will live longer. Nobody will. The guys who were smart enough to do that might have found a cure for cancer. I have a friend who runs a hedge fund who hired a very smart kid out of Cambridge University, double firsts in economics and mathematics. And he said, this kid will never do anything worthwhile in his life now. But he nevertheless hired him and paid him a huge salary. So there's, there's a waste of really smart brain power. And it's devoted to activities which are how to win at a casino. And they're pretty good, except for the fact that they undermine all kinds of real economic decisions. You divert real resources into the financial system, either to make those bets or to protect yourself against the consequences of those bets. But either way, you haven't added to productive capacity, you haven't introduced innovations, you haven't expanded employment, it's wasted resources, but as I say, it's also in part of the whole process of increasing financial fragility. We get to a definition of innovation, and the innovation that you're discussing is really innovation that, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> that doesn't really contribute to real economic growth. And yeah, I, these, these kinds of innovations don't. Uh, however, innovation in the in artificial intelligence, innovation in uh, communications, uh, innovation in making the internet work better, all of these kinds of things, they often do have consequences for real productive power. Uh, and in other cases, they might, yeah, they're still very new. Uh, so it's really innovation and speculation speculation about monetary values of all kinds of claims and things that are basically securities. But that, and and you, derivatives are derivative from, from these. They're, they're bets on what will happen to security prices or they're bets on what bets are going to win as bets on security prices second-order derivatives, and, and so on. This is all a waste of 
time from the point of view of a productive economy that is producing healthier and wealthier and better educated and stronger people. Before we run out of time in this uh, discussion, I want to make sure that I give, an, give you an opportunity to sort of look into the future. I mean, obviously, writing this kind of a book and taking on uh, the belief system of mainstream economics, trying to generate a discussion about you know what what is wrong with economic theory and how it needs to be improved, that's a step one. If there's a consensus among economists that that theory needs to be changed to more accurately explain what's happening in the real world, how does the economics profession or discipline then begin to effectively influence public policy decisions to make the changes that would achieve better outcomes? I wish I knew. This <laughs> is one, one, really the only true starting point. But looking, looking at the economics profession, looking at the economics profession, the critical schools that I mentioned earlier are all, I think, open to various, all seeking various ways to be more realistic and to make better models. Uh, that will tell us something about how the system is working, one, how the system is changing, two, and three, what is likely to be the outline of the system that follows what we have now. Why do we think that's necessary? One answer is we are moving very rapidly in innovation and tech development of technology to uh, a system in which very little labor is required to do the main production jobs that produce the basic goods that allow for healthy consumption and reproduction and running of the productive economy. All the basic industries, all the basic consumer industries, all the basic capital goods and producer industries can be run with very little labor. And most of that, uh, maybe some janitors sweeping things up, but even that can be done with, uh, with uh, uh, I believe this, the latest Robots. statistic I've seen is about three out of four people today are employed in the service sector. Yeah, but a lot of service jobs can be done by robots. Um, uh, a lot of very basic stuff like, for, for example, legal research for uh, a court case. The first pass at that can be done by a robot. And uh, many, many other kinds of jobs can be done with artificial intelligence. Um, many kinds of, almost all kinds of jobs that require energy and skill can be done by mechanical robots. 
So driverless cars, driverless trucks, uh, three million truck drivers, maybe half of them will be off in 10 years, displaced. Looking 20 or 30 years ahead, there's definitely going to be massive changes in the, uh, in the labor force. And the question of what kinds of jobs will be done. Uh, and I, have, I know very few professors who will say anything other than, well, I could never be replaced by a robot. Um, I wonder. Uh, Why not we have write, the best write, lecturers in the world do the lectures and then you, our you software have them on television? Corrects our misspellings uh, and make suggestions for us to improve our syntax and and how we how we put together words. Yeah. So you know, eventually uh, the robots will write write everything for us. Yes. Well, the thing is that that one way of looking at that is it's a massive freeing of mankind from the burden of the centuries. Ever since civilization was invented, most people have had to work very hard most of their lives. Now, very few will have to. So what are the rest of us going to do? That's a very big open question, but it, it, that is also a definition of freedom. Uh, it, we are freed from toil and heavy labor. Uh, it's it's, it's a, a, a massive benefit, but of course it appears in our present day capitalist system as a disaster. It's going to of create gigantic employment problems. And so in a, I think I hope that the movement of critical economics, the different schools of critical economics are really going to focus on that question. Um, but who knows? Uh, it may be... Well, the <laughs> it, present, it the we'll present mentality, about the labor theory at least in the United no States labor. And, and some other uh, social democracies, is increasingly dominated by a uh, social Darwinist view of the responsibility of the public sector and of government. Mm -hmm. And that you know people who are poor are largely poor because of their bad lifestyle choices, et cetera. Well, it's uh, going to- I don't, think, I don't think you and I would agree that that's the case. So absent you know, doing what Henry George had promoted and suggested that we have to collect the rent uh, from all its sources, and use that to fund public goods and maybe even make it available uh, as a uh, citizen's dividend, as, as some of our colleagues have proposed. There are steps that have to be taken uh, as an intermediate steps as we try to move toward that ultimate solution. Now, you've suggested that we should have much higher inheritance taxes and maybe even a uh, a government endowment, as suggested by Thomas Paine in Agrarian Justice, mm -hmm. for every person born, and then heavy taxation of the financial system. And the third seems to be probably the most controversial in the current political climate. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion about this. I guess you'd call it a Tobin tax. Yes. Uh, so specifically, what would you 
what kind of taxes would you impose on the financial system to sort of mitigate the destructive impact that it's having? Well, I would, I would prefer to, in a sense, answer that um, following the completion of some work that I'm doing now. But I don't want to run away from the question, so I'll, I'll make some suggestions. I think there should be very heavy taxes uh, on all kinds of speculation, on, on for example, uh, speculating uh, in, in microseconds, uh, uh, trying to get the first bids in uh, in uh, on financial markets. That that kind of stuff is just ridiculous. But many kinds of derivatives are just bets. And uh, they should not take up, they should not absorb funds that could otherwise be used productively. And I'm using productively in a loose, general sense that everybody understands, uh, even if there are questions at the margins. Uh, I would like to see, uh, I agree that much of what passes for interest is really a form of rent, uh, and so I would like to see that taxed. But I really would like to see the financial system reconstructed. Finance is a, is a public good, and we have known since Alfred Marshall uh, that public goods should not be privately supplied. There are arguments and there are exceptions and so on, but uh, uh, we, we need to, you said you're interested in externalities. I think this is absolutely right. Uh, I would argue that it is a, a general proposition of transformational growth that as the economy develops, the ratio of externalities, positive and negative, me measured in value terms, even though they're only estimates, to GNP rises. That more and more markets are dominated by externalities. Therefore, they don't work as competitive markets should. Um, and that this is, this is a, a proposition that indicates that regulation and public sector uh, ownership really should rise. Whereas right now the economy is committed to all kinds of deregulation, uh, which is moving in the wrong direction. Uh, but specifically looking ahead at the problem of labor, uh, the immediate problem, it seems to me, we have seen a solution the immediate problem is one to which we have seen a solution for some time, and that solution is the so-called employer of last resort. Um, Government-financed employment in various kinds of public sector jobs, and we could perfectly well see groups of people banding together to propose a, um, an activity that they would undertake which could be financed this way. Uh, in other words, 
we could have venture capital in this as well. Um, this has the advantage of setting up institutions that finance public activity um, in advance of the march of the robots. Um, we, we, we start in on the process of producing activities that replace the jobs that are being, that are going to be done by robots. I think, I think this is a good path in which we should well, it investigate. Seems, it seems that we are at least as a society here in the United States and in other countries at least having this discussion. And the discussion seems to be stimulated by the realization that the systems we've depended upon are failing us. Whether or not we come to the right decisions as a result of that failure seems to be the societal challenge. Maybe it's a moral challenge as much as an, a challenge of analysis. Um, you know, before, we're, we're probably reaching you know, the end of, of our time now, but I'd like to ask you if you would want to leave one message to the reader of the book uh, to think about as, as the person reads through the book, what would you want them to be thinking about? I'd want them to be thinking about the relationship between the real productive economy, the economy that supports families, that supports a high standard of living, that supports the reproduction and development and expansion of the capital goods that produce the capital goods that produce the consumer goods that support the families of the economy. That entire system, and on the other hand, the financial securities that are claims to that system or claims to the output of that system. You have these two, in a sense, kinds of capital, real capital and financial capital. The relationship between those two is unhealthy. Maybe it's broken, but it's at the very least unhealthy, and it breaks down from time to time with tremendously disastrous consequences. And as a further aspect of that, rents and real estate play a crucial role in the unhealthiness of that system, a crucial role in pushing that system to work improperly or to break down. And that is an insight which we get from Henry George. Among, among many insights, among and many. I hope you yes. continue to study Henry George even more deeply than you have thus far. Yes. But uh, Professor Nell, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to have this conversation with me on Smart Talk. It's been a pleasure, and I am hopeful that the book gets a wide read readership and that we hear more about it uh, as time goes on. Thank you. So thank you so much. Thank you. Very nice.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.